Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, Tom Harbin here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising. So after this brief message, we'll get right into it. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says, Criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and eighty-five grand in equity, gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need Home Title Lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, I'm back. Tom Hartman here with you. So glad to be back. Longtime listeners to our program know that every spring, my sister-in-law organizes a family vacation. And since the whole rest of my family all live in Michigan, this is literally the only time every year that Louise and I see my brothers and their wives and their kids and their everybody. We spent a week together. It was very, very nice. And I'm very grateful to Jefferson Smith for taking the time out of his busy schedule over at X-Ray FM, the radio station down the road here that carries this show here in Portland that Jefferson helps start and runs and has a show on and all kinds of stuff. You can easily track all of his stuff down online as well. But thank you to Jefferson Smith at X-Ray FM also for helping uh, support us and, and giving me a week off because it's getting crazy. It is getting genuinely crazy out there. And, you know, both the political stuff and then my general craziness starts next week. I'm going on book tour here. So that's going to be <laughs> that's back into the airplanes. Hopefully the uh, coronavirus has not extended itself into that realm. Although there's some kind of crud that's like bronchitis that seems to be going around. I got it. Three quarters of our family got it on this trip. And Sean now has it, and this, and that was that. She got it while I was out of town. So, going through the airport in Houston last week, everybody was coughing. There's something going on. Anyhow, 
I wanted to talk about what it's going to take to beat Donald Trump. Not necessarily who, but what. We're on the edge of an election here. Right on the edge of an election. In about 25 minutes, Greg Pallast is going to drop by our old friend who just won a major lawsuit in Georgia that you're going to want to hear about. But here's the point that I wanted to make. I'll just summarize it pretty straightforward. I wrote this up this morning, posted it on Facebook, turned it into a thread on Twitter. And I'll just share it with you straight up. Americans love disruptors. It's part of our political DNA. This country was birthed in disruption, the Revolutionary War. Not every country starts with a revolution or, or a war for that matter, and this one did. And it's been part of our political DNA ever since. We had George Washington as president who was like, okay, I'm going to stabilize things. And then John Adams came in and he says, no, no, we're going to turn hard right. And he started putting people in prison, newspaper publishers in prison, for writing editorials saying things about John Adams that he didn't like. His presidency was bizarre. And so Jefferson came along as a disruptor and said, no, we're going to have another American revolution. And Jefferson and many of the people of his era literally referred to the election of 1800 as the second American Revolution. And in fact, Dan Sisson and I wrote a book with that title about that election, which was an amazing, amazing story. You can find the book wherever fine books are sold. So then things got back to kind of semi-normal for a while, and then Andrew Jackson comes along and says, I'm going to disrupt things, and we're going to pay off the national debt, and we're going to kill the Second Bank of America, which he did, by the way, producing the longest and deepest Great Depression in the history of America, but he did. People wanted disruption. Abraham Lincoln, his disruption, of course, the Civil War. Not that he started it, but he finished it. Abraham Lincoln's disruption, although painful, altered our country forever, for the better. Then, you know, the great disruptors, Teddy Roosevelt, the Republican Roosevelt in the 19 aughts, the progressive Republican. And then Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s, the progressive Democrat massively changed the fabric of America. And Americans loved them for it. Americans love their disruptors. Jack Kennedy ran for president as a disruptor. This is a new generation. We're going to take on new challenges. We're going to send a man to the moon and bring it back within a decade at the time when there wasn't even the technology to do it. A disruptor. And when Jack Kennedy was assassinated, his vice president, Lyndon Johnson, continuing the disruption that Kennedy promised, Lyndon Johnson brought about, frankly, one of the largest economic and social revolutions in American history. The Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Great Society, Medicare, Medicaid. He literally created all those things from scratch. People, all right, Medicare for all, that's too big. Oh, you can't do that. It's a too big. A well, <laughs> Lyndon Johnson created Medicare to begin with, right? Huge, disruptive. Reagan came along in 1980 and said, I'm going to disrupt things. And people thought, oh, well, maybe this will be a good thing, right? I mean, you know, Reagan was considered a radical, an extremist. Democrats referred to him as Ronnie Reagan. And he was a disruptor, and he did change America, not in a way that I'm happy about, but, you know, he got elected, and he got reelected, and was beloved by his party, anyway, for a long, long time. And Bill Clinton came along in 92 and campaigned as a disruptor. Now, he didn't actually disrupt anything. In fact, he extended the Reagan Revolution, substantially extended the Reagan Revolution. And then the next president who came along as a disruptor was Barack Obama. 
and his disruption was historic. In addition to being the first African-American president, he also went back to the theme that Franklin Roosevelt had talked about and that Lyndon Johnson talked about. Remember, Medicare, when LBJ originally passed it, within a decade was supposed to extend to everybody. Franklin Roosevelt proposed his second Bill of Rights, which included health care for everybody in the United States. He just died within a year of giving that speech, and Harry Truman couldn't pull it off. I'm not sure Harry Truman had it in his heart, but, you know, Harry Truman was a decent president, but not a great one. But in any case, my point is that each one of these guys, Obama campaigned on being a disruptor. What is change? Hope and change, right? Change, disruption. And then Trump came along and he said, you know, things aren't working out all that well. And he was right. 40 years of Reaganomics has taken a giant chunk out of the backside of the American middle class. A lot of things were not working. The rich were getting massively richer. Let's not forget, Trump said that he was going to raise taxes on rich people. He was going to bring back jobs from overseas. He's done neither of those things. Obviously, he's lowered taxes on rich people. He hasn't brought any jobs back from overseas. In fact, the new NAFTA USMCA deal that he cut has, again, incentives to move jobs to Mexico. But he campaigned on these things that seemed progressive. In a State of the Union address, he lied through his teeth when he said, I will not cut your Medicare, Social Security, or Medicaid. And here we now see his budget. Massive cuts to Medicaid, functionally cutting back on Medicare and Social Security. So the bottom line, the American people know things are not right. And they want someone to metaphorically blow up the system. You know, we have been, we, the American people, and this is why I think Donald Trump became possible, was because Obama was thwarted by Mitch McConnell in his efforts to disrupt America, to change things. Very effectively thwarted. He didn't even, I mean, you know, McConnell, talk about spitting on the Constitution. McConnell didn't even let him have his Supreme Court nominee. That goes down in the annals of infamy, in my opinion. Mitch McConnell, one of, the, one of the most unpatriotic members of Congress in my lifetime. So the bottom line here, what I'm saying with all this, is that in my opinion, this election, this 2020 election that's coming up in November of this year, is not about left or right. I mean, Trump scrambled all that by adopting all these left-wing points. I'm going to raise your wages. I'm going to reduce middle-class taxes. I'm going to raise taxes on rich people. I'm going to bring jobs back. I'm, you know, we're not, we're going to blow up the trade deals, et cetera, et cetera. This isn't about left or right. It's not about socialism or capitalism. We have a capitalist system with large elements of socialism in it, from Social Security to, to Trump giving $28 billion to the farmers. When everybody, all the Republicans were screaming socialism, when Barack Obama gave $12 billion to the auto industry to keep it from going down in flames. Remember that? This is not about socialism. It's not about capitalism. This is about the status quo versus the disruptors. And to the extent that Donald Trump has an edge in this election, to the extent that Donald Trump has a chance in this election, it's the extent to which people believe that he is actually changing America. They, uh, most, I think probably most, more than 50% of voters are not all that certain about 
what kind of change they want. They just know things aren't working. Their kids are 50 grand in debt. Their parents are having to go bankrupt in order to get long-term nursing care. They themselves are paying a fortune for health insurance and can't go to the doctor because they can't afford their co-pays. I mean, people know that we're screwed. And that's why I think that the Democratic candidate who most likely will beat Trump is a disruptor. And I can identify several disruptors, but I don't want to get into individual candidates in this. I just want to be very clear. This is not just a, we need a revolutionary Bernie screed. I'm seeing several candidates who are talking about disruption, and I think that that's a good thing. And if we don't talk about disruption, and if we don't have a disruptor as our Democratic candidate, we're not going to get back all those people who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. All those people who voted for Bernie in the primaries and then voted for Trump. We need a disruptor. What do you think? Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great, by Professor Harvey J. Kay, who's a professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. This is from the introduction, page one. We need to remember. We need to remember what conservatives have never wanted us to remember and what liberals have all too often forgotten. Now, after more than 30 years of subordinating the public good to corporate priorities and private greed, of subjecting ourselves to widening inequality and intensifying insecurities, and of denying our democratic impulses and yearnings, we need to remember. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who rescued the United States from the economic destruction of the Great Depression and defended it against fascism and imperialism in the Second World War. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who not only saved the nation from economic ruin and political oblivion, but also turned it into the strongest and most prosperous country on earth. And most of all, we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who accomplished all that in the face of powerful, conservative, reactionary, and corporate opposition, and despite all their own faults and failings by making America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. Now, when all they fought for is under siege, and we, too, find ourselves confronting crises and forces that threaten the nation and all that it stands for, now we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the most progressive generation in American history. We are the children of the men and women who articulated, fought for, and endowed us with the promise of the four freedoms. On the afternoon of January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt went up to Capitol Hill to deliver his annual message to Congress. Just weeks earlier, he had defeated the Republican Wendell Wilkie at the polls and won re-election to an unprecedented third term. But Roosevelt now faced a far greater challenge, one even more daunting than those he confronted in his first and second terms. Still stalked by the Great Depression, the United States was also increasingly threatened by the Axis power, Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, Imperial Japan. And with war already raging East and West, Americans had yet to agree about how to respond to the danger. The president, however, did not falter. He not only proceeded to propose measures to address the emergency, he gave dramatic new meaning to all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, the people of the United States, a new birth of freedom and government of the people, by the people, and for the people. 
FDR knew about crises, but he knew as well what Americans could accomplish even in the darkest of times. Born in 1882, he had grown up privileged, the son of New York Hudson River Gentry. Yet long before becoming president, he had suffered serious defeats and setbacks, none more devastating than contracting polio in 1921 at the age of 39. The disease left him permanently unable to stand up or walk without assistance. However, supported by his wife Eleanor and other family members and friends, he had risen above the paralysis to become the most dynamic political figure in the United States. Moreover, his experiences and encounters in the course of doing so had reaffirmed and deepened his already powerful faith and confidence in God, in himself, and in his fellow citizens, all of which had enabled him, in the face of the worst economic and social catastrophe in the nation's history, to defiantly state that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and then go on to proclaim this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. Armed with this faith and confidence and propelled by the popular energies that his words and elections elicited, he determinedly pursued the initiatives of relief, recovery, reconstruction, and reform known as the New Deal. Together, president and people severely tested each other, made mistakes and regrettable compromises, and suffered defeats and disappointments. Nevertheless, challenging each other to live up to their finest ideals, Roosevelt and his fellow citizens advanced them further than either had expected or even imagined possible. Confronting fierce conservative reactionary and corporate opposition, they not only rejected authoritarianism, but also redeemed the nation's historic purpose and promise by initiating revolutionary changes in American government and public life and radically extending American freedom, equality, and democracy. They subjected big business to public account and regulation, empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people, mobilized and organized labor unions, fought for their rights, broadened and leveled the we and we the people, established a social security system, expanded the nation's public infrastructure, improved the environment, cultivated the arts, and refashioned popular culture. And while much remained to be done, they imbued themselves with fresh democratic convictions, hopes, and aspirations. Danny before the American people and their assembled representatives that early January day, the president surely believed their rendezvous with destiny had come. He told them straightforwardly that Americans were now confronting a moment unprecedented in the history of the United States. A moment unprecedented because never before had American security been as seriously threatened from without. And he refused to appease those who threatened our nation's safety. The book is The Fight for the Four Freedoms by Harvey K. Imagine this Valentine's Day story is you. You're parked outside the restaurant where you're meeting your date in 10 minutes. Glancing in the mirror, you notice your wrinkles and large under-eye bags. You rummage through your bag thinking, where's my secret weapon? And there it is, plexiderm. You apply the clear serum onto your eyes and boom, two minutes later, you start seeing the under-eye bags and wrinkles disappearing in front of your eyes. You'll look years younger. Plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the Valentine's Day gift you give yourself. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and enter Voices for 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Again, enter Voices at TryPlexiderm.com to get 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, so to get my special discount, enter voices at triplexiderm.com.
Michael in Bronx, New York. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? I love the idea what you say about disruptors because there are good disruptors, and as you have listed, there are bad disruptors. Right, Lord Ra- knows the current Reagan one. And Trump. Yep, exactly. You were also correct when you said it's not about right versus left; it's about right versus wrong. So, how can we be disruptors in a good way? And here's the answer: the thing is that. Every lie, every single time Trump and the GOPs tell the lie, we, I don't want to use the word smack them, but you get the idea, Mm -hmm. with the truth and raise awareness all around. Look what happened over um, the weekend. He went on this tyrant. It was State of the Union. There was no State of the Union. It was State of Division with a whole bunch of shenanigans. Mm -hmm. And then he fires two ambassadors for testifying at the House impeachment hearing. Now, these right-wingers, they want to keep saying, oh, the president can hire and fire anyone he chooses. But let's not forget one thing. Here's where the truth of the matter comes in. And this is whether you're president or you're not president. A, you cannot fire someone for arbitrary reasons, and B, it is illegal to retaliate against someone that reports you. So right there, I just cited two illegal acts of Trump within a week already. So this is what we got to do, you know, don't you think? I do. I completely agree with you, Michael, and I think that those are really important things. And for example, I mean, Kevin McCarthy, limited IQ guy, he's the theoretical leader of the Republicans in the House. I'd say actually probably Charles Koch is the leader of the Republicans in the House, but in any case, or Freedom Works, uh, match, what's his name? CPAC. But in any case, Kevin McCarthy came out and said, oh, yeah, well, you don't want a Democrat because you're going to get a recession. Well, a recession is queued up. It's coming regardless of who the next president is. But let's look at who was president when we had our our last recessions in 1953 it was eisenhower republican in 58 eisenhower republican 60 eisenhower republican 69 nixon 73 nixon 1980 that was democratic that was jimmy carter 1981 reagan republican 1990 bush senior a republican 2001 bush junior republican 2007 bush junior republican virtually every single one is a republican causing a recession You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. With a single exception in 1980, the year that Reagan was running for the White House. And speaking about uh, going to Los Angeles on the book tour uh, on Saturday, both Stephanie Miller and Greg Pallast are going to join me at the uh, Sportsman's Lounge, I believe it is. Lodge. Lodge. Sportsman's Lodge. There we go. (laughs) Hotel at 1 p.m. on Saturday. Stephanie Miller and Greg Pallast. And there's more information at kpfk.org. Hey, Greg. Hey, Tom. It's our old old buddy, Greg Pallast, the... uh, peripatetic investigative journalist, author, filmmaker. His most recent piece, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, Greg Palast, P-A-L-A-S-T dot com is his website, and his Twitter handle is Greg underscore Palast, just like mine is Tom underscore Hartman. So I understand that Judge Eleanor Ross, this federal judge, gave you a giant victory over the guy who's the governor of Georgia now because he was able to steal a vote from Stacey Abrams, Brian Kemp. That's right. In fact, I got to tell you, I could have been knocked over by a feather because, Tom, Brian Kemp, who absolutely, I had the absolute stone-cold proof he stole the election from Stacey Abrams, removing 340,134 people from the Georgia voter rolls, 
because he said that they had moved. They never left. I have their names and addresses. I know, you know, our experts found out where they could be. We sued this guy to get to bust open his files because he was playing games with Chris Kobach. He was using Georgia cross-check lists, Georgia voter rolls, to remove voters from 30 other states in coordination with Chris Kobach. And I need the inside on that. So he said he never did it. The judge basically called him a liar and said, we don't even need a trial. And without my asking, without my lawyers asking, the judge said, you've lost, Mr. Kemp. You lied to Mr. Palace. You're going to open up your files and give him the material. Wow. It was unbelievable. No trial. I didn't even ask for this because that's way beyond what anyone in litigation can imagine. But for Brian Kemp and for the GOP ballot burgling machine, this is not good news because we're cracking open their files everywhere. It also underscores a new trick that the Palace Investigative Fund is using, and I'm doing this now for The Guardian USA, which is we are using the National Voter Registration Act, threats of lawsuits. We filed several. Kemp is the first loser to open up the files of these guys who are purging the voter rolls around America, Ohio, Michigan. I was just in Wisconsin. So this is a gigantic win in a federal court in the fight against vote thievery. And by the way, we had great people working with us, including Helen Butler of the Georgia Coalition for New People's Agenda. And that is founded and headed by the Reverend Joseph Lowry. If you don't know that great civil rights legend, please learn about him. I spoke to him. He's 95. And he said, you know, Brian Kemp is just Jim Crow all over again. Yeah. And in fact, in my home state of Michigan, I understand tens of thousands of voters just before the last election. And I don't recall Trump's victory in Michigan. I think it was 17,000 votes or something like 14,000. Tens of 10,700. Okay. Tens of thousands of voters with names like James Brown and Mohammed Mohammed were purged from the Michigan lists because Rick Snyder, the Republican governor of Michigan, said, oh, these people are also on Brian Kemp's list that he sent us from Georgia. So obviously, they're voting in both states. They must be, you know, voting in Georgia and then hopping in their cars and driving like a bunny up to Michigan and then illegally voting here in Michigan. And he purged their names. All these people showed up to vote. They were given provisional ballots, which are never counted unless an election is contested in a court of law. And therefore, their their count their ballots were never counted. But when the exit pollsters said, who'd you vote for? You know, they said, oh, I voted for Hillary Clinton. And that's why the exit polls show Hillary Clinton winning. But the actual tabulation shows Donald Trump. Do I have all that right, Greg? Well, in fact, I went to the Secretary of State of Michigan and showed him the Georgia list he was using, the list from Brian Kemp that he was using in Michigan to knock off voters. And he says, yes, we are aggressively using that list. Aggressively. Wow. We estimate, I estimate 50 to 60,000 Michiganders, almost all of them voters of color, were removed before the 2016 election, about five times Trump's supposed margin in Michigan. And that's, we're going to crack this all open. We're going to haul Michigan into federal court as well and get the skinny on this and bust it. Yeah, this is why I wrote this book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. And, yes, it is. And, and, I, you know, and thank you for I the blurb it. on the front cover. Let me endorse it. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. Yeah. It's amazing. No, you really want it. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I knew everything about voting. I think it's important that we spread this message. Greg, you mentioned yeah. the National Voting Rights Act. or the uh, It was referred to back when it was passed in, what, the 70s, as I recall, called the Motor Voter Act? 
Yes. And the Republicans. Yeah, under, no, well, no, in 93 under Bill in Clinton. 93. Okay, thank you. And the Republicans absolutely hated this thing. And they said, you know, oh, if, you, if you give states the ability to automatically register people to vote when they get a driver's license, then blah, 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 you know. But the reality is that, you know, it hasn't been putting phony baloney people on the voting rolls. And it has been a big thing. But the important thing is, you know, in 2000, in Bush v. Gore, Chief Justice Rehnquist famously is quoted in that decision as saying there is no right to vote for president of the United States in the Constitution. There is no constitutional right for individuals to vote for the president. Now, of course, he was referring to the Electoral College, but the Motor Voter Act, that 1993 piece of legislation, in its preamble says voting is a right in the United States fundamental of Fundamental right, yes, a fundamental right. Fundamental and it is right. also, and, and very important for lawyers listening, it's also in the text, which is very important, which gives it weight of law. That's correct. So we have it in the national but law, but they do everything to undermine it, and that's why, unfortunately, after 20 years, Tom, I'm still on the vote-thieving trail. Well, this is the important thing. If I mean, this has never been adjudicated at the level of the Supreme Court, and that's why it's being largely ignored by the Republicans. This is my last book on the Supreme Court, The Betrayal of America. But if, using judicial review, the Supreme Court was ever to say, yes, that's constitutional, we actually do have a right to vote, then all this kind of stuff that Brian Kemp and nearly 30 Republican governors are literally doing right now, this is their election strategy for 2020, is to purge as many people as possible, particularly people of color, off the voting rolls. And they're doing it, and they're getting away with it. If that particular part of the Motor Voter Act could be adjudicated, it could change everything. What do you think? Well, that's why we turned over our files to Stacey Abrams' organization, Fair Fight, and our experts are working with her, because she's taking that on directly. As a journalist, I'm always busting open the files, but now the files are in the hands of people who are ready to go to the Supreme Court to change the law. That's a good thing. So what's next? You now have access to Brian Kemp's oh, records. Is he, is he saying, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll get them to you by, oh, 2029? Uh, well... Well, that's the thing. You know, it's always I got to chase the guy around. Last time I got him at the, uh, you know, at a pig roast. Yeah, I remember uh, right the video. The yeah, yeah, and, you know, so like I got to chase. This is one of the problems. I got to chase this guy around. They lie. They say they don't have the papers. The judge is just was just fed up. So I don't know. I guess the judge could find him in, in contempt if he keeps up this game. But what I'm very interested in doing is saying, look what I did to Kemp. And by the way, he's got to pay me now. Oh, what I did to Kemp. You want to, if you want to take me on in Michigan, if you want to take me on these right wing groups Wisconsin. In, in Ohio. And I just came back from Wisconsin, by the way. That's the other place I'm going. Because the reason I went to Wisconsin, unusually, you had an uprising which got rid of Scott Walker and right. put in not only Tony Evers, but his lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes, an African-American who is com deeply committed to protecting voters. And the state Republican-controlled legislature passed a law to remove 247,000 people in almost all of them in Milwaukee and Madison, that is Democrats of a darker hue. And the state is fighting the purge. So you have a right-wing organization called Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, backed by the right-wing billionaire Bradley family. And they are suing the state to force the state, this is crazy, but to force the state to purge people that the state itself has now said, this list is phony. This list, it's kind of a, it's called Eric, it's kind of a cross-check light, mm -hmm. but it's 247,000 names, and so I've now, I'm 
telling the state that I'm going to have my experts go through that list name by name, I can tell you it's completely phony. They are fighting this purge. So you have an unusual situation in which a state is actually fighting a purge. But the Republicans are desperate. Trump won Michigan by less than 23,000 votes. So they're trying to purge 10 times as many people as Trump's Right. so-called victory margin in yeah. 2016. Republicans don't, the only way they can win an election is by cheating. I mean, that's the bottom line. Greg, we're out of time, but real quickly, what can people do who want to learn more information? Where can they go? What should they do? GregPalace.com and read me in the Guardian USA. Okay, you got it. Greg Palace, our old friend and Saturday, Greg and I Saturday. and Stephanie Miller, this is part of my book tour, will be at the Sportsman's Lodge Hotel in Los Angeles at 1 p.m. and more information at kpfk.org or tomhartman.com and gregpalace.com. Thanks, Greg. Welcome, Tom. You're listening Bye. to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Greg Palace, he's really one of the good guys. We'll be back. I'll be picking up your calls right after this break. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest growing white collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change by Stacey Abrams. This is from Chapter One. I sit in the living room, a cozy space, warm in the early summer. I'm perched on the edge of a sofa next to Valerie, the home's owner, a lovely black woman in her late 40s. Across from us, seated close together on a wide settee met for one, are her two children, a son and a daughter. Politicians rarely visit their streets, which are nestled in a poorer community in South Georgia. Valerie beams with pride that both her children are headed to college in the fall. David, 17, plans to study criminology. Maya, 18, her belly round with her first child, intends to become a middle school teacher. Both newly graduated from high school, Maya will give birth in mere weeks and begin college months later, an unwed teen mother. Her intended school is more than three hours north of her home, so her mother will raise her newborn baby while she starts her freshman year. Valerie speaks matter-of-factly about the coming challenge, raising a new child just as hers leave the nest. Still, she is determined that both her children pursue college degrees that she never received. Maya, the mother-to-be, wonders how she'll do so far away from home and her baby. Yet in the next breath, she explains how college will be the best for her and her child. Their future success rests upon her. I've come to their home as part of my campaign for governor, so I asked Valerie what she expects of someone like me. What can I do to help make lives like hers better? In her soft voice, she replies, she just wants options for financial aid for her children. They will succeed, she says, if they can afford to stay in school. As I look around the modest home passed down through the generations, I understand both the pride and the desperation tangled in her response. 
She got them through and has given them the tools to carve out better lives for themselves. We chat more about the worries she's lived with all those years, our discussion turning to the crime and poverty in their neighborhood. Then I ask Valerie what she wants. At first, all I get in response is a quizzical look. That suggests I need to reconsider my bid for higher office. I repeat, what do you want for you? What secret dream do you have for yourself? Her confused expression turns to one of surprise. I don't know, she tells me. I've been a cashier at the Piggly Wiggly for 20 years. You must want something, I probe, something you'd like to do for you. A daycare, she admits quietly. I'd like to start a daycare center for unwed mothers like my daughter, so more girls can finish school and pursue their dreams. But that ambition is beyond her. Her body language, her tone of voice, her averted gaze speak louder than her words. I press her, but she demurs with a smile. Let's just see what happens if you win the governor's job, she says. Valerie's house in South Georgia is not too different from the squat red brick house where I grew up on South Street in Gulfport, Mississippi. An oak tree grew in our front yard, shadowing the front sidewalk, forbidding grass to grow beneath its shade. Pink azaleas bloomed each spring from bushes that flanked the front door. Our rented house and the others set close by teemed with children, all black, all working class. We played in our postage-stamped yards, make-believing the fantastical. Superhero exploits, cops and robbers. As we got older, we'd talk about moving to New Orleans or living in one of the mansions along the beachfront that lay less than five miles away across the railroad tracks that ran in between our neighborhood and the more wealthy environs. We dreamed of more while our parents' lives centered around survival and making it from paycheck to paycheck. Instinctively, we understood that more had to be possible, even if we didn't know what to do to get there. These imaginings, these desires, are the roots of ambition. As adults, like Valerie, we tend to edit our desires until they fit our construction of who we're supposed to become. In such a world, I wouldn't dare dream of running for higher office, for mayor, or governor, or president. At least for now, Valerie sees herself retiring in 20 more years from Piggly Wiggly as a cashier, rather than as a small business owner who helps the community raise its children. From our brief meeting, I could see she had the fire, albeit of a low burn, of a minority leader. She had ambition, she had vision, but she didn't have the faith, and understandably so. Whether we come from working class neighborhoods or grow up comfortably middle class, minorities rarely come of age explicitly thinking about what we want and how to get it. People already in power almost never have to think about whether they belong in the room, much less if they would be listened to once outside. These men, and they are usually men and typically white, do not have to grapple with low expectations based on gender or race or class. Ambition for them begins with reminiscences of old times and older friendships or newer alliances. The ends have already been decided. Only the means are to be discussed. Most potential minority leaders feel the same lack of faith Valerie had, at least at some point in their evolution. We may not know how to get the first job, let alone make it to the big chair. We don't know how to take the leap from accepting our fates to actually changing them, and not just a little, but radically. Then there are those who simply don't know what they want. The drive to achieve burns inside, often without a clear target. We want to be something, but what that is remains hazy. Often we cannot articulate our goals because they lie just beyond the reach of who we're supposed to be. Ambition's scale is irrelevant. What holds us back is not scope, it's fear. And because we don't know what to call our dreams, don't know how to make them happen, or are pretty sure we'll be disappointed, we just stand still. But becoming a minority leader demands that we embrace ambition as our due. Stacey Abrams.
Mary in Arlington, Texas. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind today? Well, I just heard you talk, and I just love to hear you talk. Well, thank you. <laughs> but the only way I can see that we're going to defeat this man is talk the truth. He wants to do away with our Social Security. He does. And he's we already need to it. get on that stick real quick. Yep. I agree. And he's already cut back substantially on the staff at Social Security. So it takes yes. longer, you know, it's forever to even get in touch with anybody. Now, what these guys do, these Republicans do, when you've got a good government program that's actually helping people, but a, but a bank or an insurance company might be able to make money doing the same thing, not as well, but make money doing it, is they'll break the government program. And Trump is breaking Social Security. On top of that, of course, he's already announced he's dialing back Social Security disability insurance. We have to jump on these things immediately. We have to start right now when they're talking about the things that these primaries and, you know, talk about them because the people are concerned. Yeah. They can't earn a living. Yeah. They cannot earn a And, of course, Bernie tells us this, but the rest of them do not. And they need to. There are a couple of candidates who are speaking this way. And, I mean, Elizabeth Warren obviously is speaking this but way. She stopped. She she has uh, slowed she's down. She slowed her down rise. anyway. No yeah. matter what, she slowed yeah. down. We'll see how it shakes out. I'm, the trends are fairly obvious, you know, uh, Bernie and Buttigieg. And I would say, in some ways, Buttigieg is a disruptor as well. I mean, you know, he's he'd be our first gay candidate. He has talked about. Who cares about, about that? Well, well, here in the South, they probably will care. Well, if the, they, the, if the people really on the right it. are going to get all hysterical, but I think that might actually work for him. But my point wasn't just that. Buttigieg has come out, this is not an endorsement of him by any means, but he has come out and said, we have to get money out of politics. And in fact, I think Absolutely. there's a broad consensus Absolutely. about that. Amy Klobuchar is talking about that as well. I think that many of the candidates, uh, at least those two candidates, that I and others have kind of treated as, well, they're not really progressive, so we'll just discount them. If you look at their policy positions, they are so far to the left of where Hillary Clinton was four years ago, where even Barack Obama was eight years ago. It is extraordinary how far this country has moved that the people who are called the moderates right now, I'd say with the single exception of Joe Biden, the people who are called the moderates right now are actually substantially more activist, substantially more disruptive, substantially more progressive than our last two Democratic presidents. And they were damn progressive relative to the people before them. I mean, this is just a trend line through American politics. And I think it's a good thing, Mary. People do not remember. I'm pretty old. I'm 80 years old. Mm -hmm. But they forget that, number one, Roosevelt's the one that introduced this. Then we had Johnson yep. that brought it to fruition. Yep. You know, and if he hadn't brought it to fruition, we would not be here. I remember when we went to school and had no supplies. Yep. See, I am old enough to remember that we went to school and this was the school. And it was all supplied. It was all free. Yeah. Free education, go. free everything. Yep. Mary, I got to run. But thank you for the call and thanks for your words of wisdom. Tim in Los Angeles. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? Hello, hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I think that we need to message about. In order to beat Trump, I think we really need to message out there about how he's stealing our children's future and how he's treating children in this country. 
and all the suffering that's going on, because it's been proven that, well, somebody, this is a quote from somebody, that people don't tend to revolt until they're watching their children starve. Hmm. Uh, we don't want to get to that point, yeah. you know? Well, we have, uh, I believe the number is around 10 million children a year in the United States who go to bed hungry. Uh, I don't yeah, recall the number of minimum. Graceful. Yeah, I, I, it is. And and then on top of that, you've got, a, you know, another 20, 30, 40 million Americans who who are afraid to go to the doctor. They can't afford it, even if they're insured. They can't handle the co-pays or the deductibles, food, shelter, lodging. I mean, it's yeah. it is an abomination. Tim, thank you. Your point is really, really well made. No, I appreciate I want to say one more thing. Yeah. Is that the Democrats are spending so much time on the details of their programs, people aren't interested in that. People are interested in their own families. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it's wise to keep to the big picture and keep also keep talking about the kind of damage that the Republicans are doing to this country. Jim in Belvedere, Illinois. Hey, Jim, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? I think if Bernie is the company, mm-hmm. I'd like to know, I'd like to see him expound on a vision where he sees this country going with his policies, because I do believe in his policies, and I do believe we need a mix of capitalism and a strong social safety net to create a floor for the market. Bernie has laid that out, as has Elizabeth Warren, that you know both of them are in favor, uh, aggressively in favor of strengthening workers' rights, strengthening consumers' rights. You know, having the same old stuff speech. You know, same old stuff. But see, that's I think I think it will, because what it does is it resonates with people. I can't tell you, Jim, how many people I, I, you know, I've told this story a million times, but I think it's really important for people to hear it. I lived for seven years in Washington, D.C., in a marina in Washington, D.C., the the Capital Yacht Club, a relatively upscale where everybody's living on boats. Right. And probably a third of the people there, maybe maybe as many as half were military or ex-military, particularly the Navy and the Coast Guard. And an awful lot of them were Republicans. And I know personally, and became friends with, seven people who had consistently throughout their lives voted nothing but Republican, who all supported, who all voted for Bernie in the Democratic primary, and then voted for Trump in the general election. Those voters are out there. Bernie's message, and not just Bernie's message, but a progressive message in general, resonates with them. They want change too. Now, I'm not saying that you know the Democratic Party should be jumping through hoops trying to get Republicans or swing voters or you know whatever you want to call those folks in to vote. What I am saying, because I you know I think that really we just need to turn out the base. But beyond that, I think that it will be overwhelming if we have a genuinely progressive candidate. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. I've I've written several op-eds over the last year or so laying out Bill Barr's history with uh, the corruption of the George Herbert Walker Bush administration and the Reagan administration that he was essentially an extension of. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush put Bill Barr in as attorney general. Bill Barr then supervised the cover-up of the Iran-Contra scandal, Reagan's and Bush's Iran-Contra scandal, and also covered up a scandal that was called Iraq-Gate back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, where the Reagan administration was selling weapons of mass destruction illegally to Saddam Hussein. And Saddam Hussein was then using those weapons in his war with Iran. And at the same time, we were apparently selling to Iran satellite map 
showing the movement of the uh, Iraqi uh, soldiers. Those two countries each lost over a million men or people, mostly men, soldiers in that border conflict that they had that lasted all those years. And we were feeding it from both sides. It was against the law. Congress had passed a law making that illegal, but Bush and Reagan did it anyway. And Bill Barr covered that up. Now you've got Senator Lindsey Graham. It was on the Sunday shows. Senator Lindsey Graham coming right out and telling you know, God and everybody, that Bill Barr is our attorney general, our chief law enforcement officer, is apparently participating in some sort of a, of a extra governmental enterprise. I mean, this is, this is extraordinary, saying that, that uh, again, a United States senator, Lindsey Graham, saying that the Attorney General of the United States is conspiring with a private attorney, Rudy Giuliani, who works on behalf of Donald Trump as an individual, not as the President of the United States. He's not an official lawyer. In fact, Giuliani was being paid by Lev Parnas with money from a Ukrainian or Russian oligarch. So now we've got Giuliani collaborating with the chief law enforcement officer of the United States to try to go after Joe Biden and his son. And it's increasingly not even looking like Joe Biden's going to be the nominee, although, you know, don't count your chickens or, or don't anti-count your chickens, as the case may be. But, I mean, what are they going to do if it's somebody else? Is Bill Barr going to be using the FBI to investigate Pete Buttigieg's background? Are they going to be looking into Bernie Sanders? Are they going to be, you know, wiretapping Elizabeth Warren? Are they going to be following Amy Klobuchar around? I mean, I guarantee that operatives of, of the Lev Parnas, Igor Fruman type, Republican dirty tricksters, like, you know, Chuck Colson back in the day with, you know, with Ed Muskie, that they're already following these candidates around and doing what they can. But it becomes a whole completely different thing when the Department of Justice gets involved. Of all the agencies in government, when you look at what happens when authoritarianism takes over a government, whether it's extreme authoritarianism like you saw in Germany in the 1930s, somewhat less extreme authoritarianism like you saw in Italy and Spain during the 1930s, a little more moderate authoritarianism like we're seeing right now in Hungary, in Poland, in the Philippines, Bolsonaro trying to pull this off in Brazil. Frankly, even on, you know, arguably on the left, I, and I put that in quotes because, you know, you see the so-called, you know, Chinese communism combined with authoritarianism, the old Soviet Union. When that happens, the single most common event or characteristic of an authoritarian takeover is that the apparatus of justice, the criminal justice system, the investigative agencies associated with it, the police agencies you know, charged with enforcing the laws, and the court system are taken over and are turned away from justice and toward the goal of supporting the, the authoritarian regime. If we value democracy in this republic, 
if we value the symbols and the values of this country, if we hold those dear, then the most frightening thing that could happen in the United States has to be that our Department of Justice would become the tool, the naked tool, of an individual politician or political party. Bill Barr did this before in the 1990s, in 1992. He did it with the Iraq gate, the, the weapons of mass destruction scandal during the Reagan administration. He did it with Iran-Contra during the Reagan administration, and he's doing it again. And this is, at least according to Lindsey Graham, he's doing it again. The Justice Department came out and said they didn't deny it. They said a spokeswoman for the Justice Department declined to comment on Mr. Graham's assertion. That's a quote from the New York Times. Now, you would think that they would say, what? Use the court system, the justice system, the criminal law system of our country as a political tool? No, we would never do that. The Attorney General would never do that. That's what they should have said. But that's not what they said. This concerns me tremendously, and it should concern you as well. You know, first they came for the communists, right? And I was not a communist, so I, you know, or the socialists, I guess it was. And, and then they came for the trade unionists. And, you know, all, you know the Pastor Niemöller story. This is grim stuff. First they came for Hunter Biden. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. When is it that they come for you and me? Imagine this Valentine's Day story is you. You're parked outside the restaurant where you're meeting your date in 10 minutes. Glancing in the mirror, you notice your wrinkles and large under-eye bags. You rummage through your bag thinking, where's my secret weapon? And there it is, plexiderm. You apply the clear serum under your eyes and boom, two minutes later, you start seeing the under-eye bags and wrinkles disappearing in front of your eyes. You'll look years younger. Plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the Valentine's Day gift you give yourself. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and enter Voices for 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Again, enter Voices at TriPlexiderm.com to get 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, so to get my special discount, enter Voices at TriPlexiderm.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Michael in Seattle. Hey, Michael, what's up? Greetings, Tom. Great show as usual. You, you had said earlier in the broadcast about disruptors. Yeah. And I couldn't agree with you more, except for, unless I heard you wrong, you mentioned that Pete Buttigieg as, could be seen as a disruptor. Could be. And I wanted to take... It's a giant caveat. Yeah, it's a giant caveat, because I believe the case could be made that he's uh, more of a mirage and a slight of the DNC and corporate media's hand to take out the progressive majority. And that I agree also that at a brokered convention, and especially if we get into the ageism that, as they're calling him now, Mayor Pete would be thrown in as a Democratic 
disruptor because of his lifestyle or because of you you know, his uh, war record. Yeah, but he's gay. You know, or, Michael, let anyway, me just. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, let me just qualify this. Pete Buttigieg, there's two things that I've observed about Pete Buttigieg, well, several that I think are important for us to all keep in mind. The first is, as a gay man his entire life, he understands what it is like to be a minority in the United States, a persecuted Agreed. minority. Agreed. And that's a perspective that pretty much no other white man in this country can claim outside of the gay community. So, Absolutely. number two, he actually served in our military in combat, and he's yes, he one did. of the few people who actually understands the, the real cost of war. That's an important point. Number three, I have heard him speak, and in fact, I tweeted support of him <laughs> back in the, you know, back a year ago when he gave one of his very first speeches, and he said, we've got to overturn Citizens United. We've got to get money out of politics. He was very emphatic about that. He's taken some progressive positions, and even his position of Medicare for anyone who wants it is radically more pro progressive than literally anything Barack Obama was proposing. So I don't see him as a stalking horse. I see him as a Kinsey consultant, this is the last data point for me of, about Peter Buttigieg, is that, you know, fresh out of college with, you know, his Rhodes Scholarship and everything else, smart, smart guy, he goes to work for the world's leading consulting company, McKinsey, that, you know, does work for evil dictatorships and giant corporations alike, that he's more of a data-driven guy. And I think he's looking at this race and he's saying, you know, you're going to get the largest majority of people for example, with healthcare, saying if you want Medicare, you can have it. And within a few years, the insurance companies will be out of business because who wants to pay 20% extra for for-profit health insurance, right? The problem with that, of course, is look at Medicare Advantage, which is privatized. They'll figure out a slick way to screw us. But I think he's a smart guy, and I think he has the potential to be a disruptor. I just don't know if he will be or if he will, you know, just buy into the, you know, the wine cave thing. <laughs> We'll see, right. you know, I, but I, I, if he's our nominee, I'm going to do everything I can to get him elected. Well, and I appreciate the caveat. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate the call. It's good to hear from you. Charles in Lara, Indiana. Hey, Charles, what's up? Hey, Tom. I was calling about the minimum wage, Bernie's minimum wage, $15 an hour. Right. It's my opinion. I'd like to know yours. If you raise the minimum wage... That raises the cost of living because whoever has to pay that extra money is going to pass it on to the consumer. Nope. And it's going to go all the way down so your milk to cars are going to go up. Nope. It's a very clever logic, Charles, and Republicans have been using that logic since 1934 when Franklin Roosevelt passed the minimum wage. And the minimum wage has been raised 38 times since then, sometimes substantially, sometimes, you know, more than a single percent, you know, real substantial wage increases. And it's also been frozen for the last, geez, I think it's about a decade now. If it was true that raising the minimum wage at the federal level, nationwide, if it was true that raising the minimum wage increased the cost of living, then the Republicans would be able to tell you the year that that happened most visibly. They would be going, but well, 1972, you know, in 1972, the minimum wage went up 1%, and the cost of living went up eight tenths of a percent. They, you, would, you would have that year burned into your brain, Charles. It has literally never happened. 
What happens when the minimum wage goes up is that companies tighten their belts, they pay their senior executives a little less, they reduce their dividends. They actually, because wages are tax deductible, their taxes go down slightly, so they have, you know, they can afford to pay that. And the most important thing that happens when the minimum wage goes up, and we're seeing this right now in the 10 or so states that in the last three year, two or three years, through mostly ballot initiatives, substantially raised their minimum wage. I mean, you've got a bunch of states, democratically controlled states around the country, where the minimum wage is now 15 bucks or is headed toward 15 bucks right now. This really started in a big way in the second year, I believe, of the Obama administration when SeaTac, uh, when the town outside Seattle where the airport is, raised their minimum wage to $15 an hour. And everybody said, oh my God, you know, if they're going to go bankrupt and the city's going to lose and, and cost of living is going to blah. And, and what happened? Economic activity increased. Economic activity in every single state that has raised the minimum wage has increased. I believe that one of the main reasons why the economy is good enough that Donald Trump can brag about it right now, one of the reasons why unemployment is so low as it is right now, is because all these democratically controlled states have been raising the minimum wage. And the proof of that is that when you look state by state at increase in GDP month, year after year after year on a state-by-state -state basis, it is the Democratic states that are seeing the fastest increase in gross domestic product. That's where you're seeing the economies grow without inflation, without an increase in cost of living. And the reason why is very, very simple. The principal driver of the economy, over 70% of all the driving power of an economy is not the Fed, it's not the stock market, it's not taxes or federal spending or state spending. It's referred to by economists as aggregate demand. And aggregate demand is a fancy economist way of saying how much money people have in their pocket every payday. Exactly. Aggregate demand is a function of wages. So when wages right. go up, when people who are making eight bucks an hour are now making 15 bucks an hour, they don't just put that money under the mattress. They go out and buy stuff. And when they go out and buy stuff, the people who sell stuff and the people who make stuff need are selling more of it and making more of it, which means that they have to hire more people to sell it and make it. And that's a virtuous cycle. Whenever the minimum wage increases, economic activity goes up. And you can prove that looking at individual cities. You can prove that looking at individual counties. You can prove that looking at individual states. So the whole narrative that you just laid out, Charles, very easy to believe. I've heard it a thousand times in my life. And it's, like I said, it's the sales pitch that the GOP started with in 1934. But it, it, there's absolutely, literally no evidence to support it. Ready to change your mind? No, not at all. Okay. By, by, no, listen, I understand everything you've said, right. and I agree with it, but the GDP will go up because people are spending more money, and they're spending more money, but are they getting more product? Yes. I don't think so. If they weren't getting more product, you wouldn't have more GDP. Years old. What you're describing is an inflationary situation, and that's not what happens. It is an inflationary inflation. No, if, if you're increasing your spending, and you're increasing GDP, and you're not increasing standard of living, that's inflation by definition. And that's not what happens when the minimum wage goes up. Talk to any person who owns a business, Charles. Wages are only one of many expenses. And in many industries, wages are the principal one. In many industries, they're a minimal one. You know, when wages go up, companies figure out ways to accommodate that. And the best way to accommodate they it is to have the board demand for their product or service. Charles, I got to run, but thanks for the call. Interesting. And thank you for respectfully letting me rant. And I, I hope I treated you well, too. 
But uh, stick around tomorrow. I look forward to talking to you about this. It's going to be a fascinating day. And thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So please get out there, get active, tag your it, and tell your friends where they can find this program and other good progressive media. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.